most of my life I've been made to doubt uh, my perception of the truth. And so um, I think once I was able to finally really grasp what I had experienced and, and felt confident in, in, in saying it, I thought, I'm going to put it all in a book. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Chúc mừng năm mới. Happy 2022, Year of the Tiger. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that on February 23rd, we are hosting a live podcast taping event with Zhong Lengui, author and illustrator of the graphic novel The Magic Fish. The novel is about a young Vietnamese-American boy, Thi, who is just coming to terms with his homosexuality and is struggling to communicate the truth about himself to his immigrant parents. He and his mother find that the best way to communicate with each other is to read fairy tales together. Join us virtually for this heartwarming and intimate conversation. For details, visit our website at www.vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash events. Welcome to season five of the podcast. Many of us have experienced losses that have changed our lives. When we lose someone we love, we find that not only our heart is broken, but grief can also affect our body, mind, and spirit. It can flip our world upside down and we get lost, longing to navigate ourselves back to what once was. Sometimes the loss we experience is not a person, but instead it is a place we call home, a sense of identity or a state of being. In this season, we bring you Lost and Found, stories about the experiences of loss and the journeys to reclaim and rebuild. Last fall in 2021, we held our first in-person event since the COVID-19 pandemic hit. We had the honor of hosting a live podcast taping event with Lee Tran, author of the memoir, House of Sticks. I met Lee through my friend and podcast brother, Randy Kim, of the Bunley Chronicles. He messaged me one day to say that he had just met Lee and read her book, and he thinks that the two of us would hit it off. Randy was right. Lee and I instantly connected. There was something about her, the sweetness in her voice and her soft-spokenness that felt warm and familiar. House of Sticks is Lee's debut novel a memoir about a young Vietnamese girl coming of age in America as her immigrant family struggles to survive financially, emotionally, and mentally in Queens, New York. When I read the book, I saw a lot of my younger self in Lee, a timid young girl afraid to speak up and disobey and feeling voiceless and lost. So I am very pleased and honored to have Lee, who drove all the way here, I think over two hours from Queens to be with us tonight. So very grateful for that. Lee was born in Vietnam. She is the youngest of four, and her family came here in 1993 as part of the Humanitarian Operations Program. 
Um, so if you're not familiar with that, it was an orderly departure program that the US government created um, as one of the last waves to help servicemen, part of the South Vietnamese army and uh, prisoners of war, have an opportunity to come to countries like America and their families. Lee is a graduate of Columbia University. Her journey of getting to Columbia was not a short one, <laughs> so we'll talk about that. Uh, she has a degree in creative writing and linguistics, and she also has received um, fellowships from McDowell, Art Omni, and Yaddo. And House of Sticks is her first book. So please join me in welcoming Lee tonight. Thank you so much for having me here, and thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, Okay, this is uh, my first chapter. It's entitled Awake, and it's, uh, it's about my first memory. A din of nervous voices, a shuffle of restless bodies, a dome of bright blue tarp. It was nighttime. I was hungry, fretful, struggling out of my mother's arms. My father had gone to trade a ceramic bowl for eggs with soy sauce. We sat on narrow, overcrowded benches waiting for him. My senses were just beginning to activate, some more than others. Vision dominated, and smell. I remember the strong odor of eggs drenched in soy sauce as my father entered the tent and carried the food back to us, and the vague presence of blurry, faceless people all around. I don't remember my three brothers being there. I knew only that we were not in a familiar place, and that shock of unfamiliarity is perhaps what has preserved this earliest memory of mine sitting on a bench in a tarpaulin tent in a refugee camp in Thailand. I was three years old, only vaguely conscious of the world around me. But in that singular moment, it was as though a light had flickered on in the uncharted rooms of my mind. I have no recollection of the moments before, of how I got there, or of what came after. But the blue remains. I can almost touch it, a country of blue as big as Antarctica frozen in the geography of my consciousness. <laughs> yes. The book has been described as a classic immigrant story, a coming of age memoir, but I think it's so much more than that. There are a lot of relatable references and situations, um, but your memoir actually touches on mental health and depression. It touches on um, D domestic violence. So I think, you know, before we kind of dive into the questions, I would just love to hear from you directly, how would you describe the book? I would describe the book as um, just my, my journey um, in peeling back all of these layers of identity uh, that was not my choice, that I had no say in, um, which is, you know, that of a daughter that of um, a sister, a Vietnamese refugee, um, someone who suffered from myopia, uh, and someone who was a nail salon technician. And it was um, in that journey that I was able to discover my unique voice um, and, and, just, and, and listen to that voice uh, amid a, a backdrop of poverty and inherited trauma. For people who are just now starting to explore the book, it starts off after that passage that you read. It, you know, the humanitarian operations is described as an orderly departure from Vietnam. 
but your first chapter starts off on how unorderly it felt <laughs> arriving in JFK um, and not immediately pick, uh, meeting the sponsor that was supposed to pick you up. Your parents kind of shuffling around the airport, not knowing the language. And arriving to Ridgewood, Queens on the subway, by the way, as your first experience of America. Um, and getting to what was um, described as a small railroad apartment. You know, tell me a little bit about if your memory of that first impression when you were writing the book, was it vivid in your mind or did you have to go through an exploration with your family of what that first day was like? You know, when your young memories are, are very hazy um, and they're, they're sort of just the, these snapshots um, of scenes, but I think for the memories in which uh, I experienced something very shocking, such as being in the, the Thai refugee camps or, or coming to this um, railroad apartment, I still have quite a vivid memory of it. Um, and it was only after writing the, the chapter would I, uh, you know, sort of sit down with my mom and walk her through what I wrote and say, is, is this what it was like? And um, you know, to my surprise, she said, this, that's exactly it. I remember it well, so. So what I loved about the book, first of all, it's such a, for me, a fast read. I think I read it in two or three days, and I couldn't put it down. It's one of the books, few books that really made me cry a lot. My husband's in the room. He will tell you he thought something was wrong with me <laughs> because I was going through half a tissue box. And um, it beautifully starts out, you as a young child, and actually, the memories were very sweet. Your circumstances were hard. I mean, your parents um, were trying to find jobs. They didn't speak the language very well. Um, you talk about the sweatshop era, where your entire family was basically making cummerbunds and bow ties in your apartment. But you talk about it in the early chapters as very sweet memories. And I specifically love the part about going to Coney Island and that experience of being there for the first time. How did you choose what parts of your early childhood to put in the book? Yeah, I think um, one of my goals in, in writing this memoir was to include all the, the moments of magic that I experienced as a child. And I think, um, I think children are much more resilient than we give them credit for. And we, we see the world through this, this very magical lens. And so I thought, why don't I just include that, uh, those scenes of innocence um, for the reader to really um, to see what we went through, but at the same time to see how I experienced it as a child versus how my parents did, which was, you know, I imagine to be a very different experience. Um, and then sort of tracking uh, my developing cognition of, of what was going on around me and, and how that later um, just informed my, my perception of the world and, and how I existed in it. Yeah, and so many parts of um, what you experienced as a child, I think, as a child, really resonated with a lot of us that come from um, first-generation immigrant or refugee families. A lot of our parents were small business owners. Um, my mom included, and I do remember, you know, as a child going to the store and helping her and stuff like that. So a lot of that was shared within your story, and I think for a lot of readers, it resonates. Um, but there's also so many things in your book that is unique and surprising. 
So let's start with uh, myopia. If people aren't familiar with that term, it's when you're nearsighted. And so Lee discovered at an early age that she had trouble seeing. Um, but because her father, who had been a prisoner of war for several years within Vietnam, and actually drafted at a very young age, was suffering from some post-traumatic stress disorder and paranoia. And his paranoia, he was convinced that um, Lee didn't need glasses, that glasses was a conspiracy from the government, and that this was something that she could fight through because not being able to see was a sign of weakness. So tell me a little bit more, because the issue of you not being able to see progresses throughout the book, but it's also such a thread because it isn't just your eyesight that is deteriorating, but it's your mental and emotional state as well throughout the book. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's funny because when you're a child, uh, your parents are basically gods to you. You know, you don't dare disobey them. You think that they have all the answers. And so when my father said that I didn't need glasses, that, you know, they were just lying to me, and I, you know, it's, if I was struggling in school, it was something that I could overcome just by studying more, um, I believed him. And at the age of eight, which is when I found out I needed glasses, it, I, you know, the myopia had not progressed as, as far um, as it would later on in my life. And so I was still able to do well. But the older I got, um, the more my, my body began to change and mature, the more my eyesight deteriorated. And um, yeah, the, the process, or, or what that process looked like was this sort of, um, this fracturing of identity where I couldn't, not only could I not see the world around me, but I could no longer also see within me as well. Um, and so, you know, that led to, to mental illness and depression, which is uh, also a very big theme. This must have been a really hard story to share publicly um, because there's so many parts of the book that is like extremely heartwarming. And I think it shares, even for me, it's hard to articulate, um, but it resonated because there's so much of it that is ingrained in the Viet culture of the bond and loyalty that families have with each other, but it's a very silent one, right? Because you're close by the experiences that you share. You're not close by the words of love that you exchange or the affection. Um, for most of us, that's sort of how our parents were brought up and that's sort of how they raised us. Um, and you share a lot of that. You, this child, wanting this internal affection, but that wasn't how your parents showed love. There are moments where you talk about your dad and his abusive nature, both physically and emotionally. And so it must have been a really hard book to write because just the process of being able to open up so many cobwebs in your past. Um, you know, one of, one of the very first chapters that I wrote for this memoir was the last chapter, um, which I won't spoil for you. <laughs> But it was sort of uh, this, this beacon of light that I wanted to work my way towards. And, and it was um, a, a beacon of forgiveness. And so I recall wanting to, to write this memoir and tell the truth, um, but to tell it with love. Um, and you know, basically portray all the different ways in which we are all of, all of us flawed human beings. And, um, and my father was a deeply flawed man, um, but at the same time, he loved me. And so 
I felt confident uh, in my heart that if I could portray the truth, but also portray all the love that was present in my life, then, um, then it would be okay. And, and, and in that process, I was also able to heal um, and, and actually get to that last chapter, not just in the book, but in my life as well. Did you share with your family that you were going to write a story about the family? I, I did. Um, and I don't think they believed me. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that was uh, a good thing. So I, I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll just work on it. I guess they don't believe me. Have they read the book? Um, my, my three brothers have. And my mother has been on Duolingo. She's, she's got this like 394-day streak on Duolingo trying to learn English <laughs> so she can read the book. Um, oh, that's yeah. sweet. The book also has a lot of uh, complexity between your parents, but I'm curious whether or not what your parents have shared with you, their life after the war in Vietnam, what it was like, and before 1993, th through the orderly departure, did they want to leave Vietnam? Have they tried to? Yeah, they actually uh, attempted to escape several times, um, but were always caught, um, and thank goodness, caught either by somebody that uh, did not report them, or a friend who would say, hey, you know, if you go past this point, you know, things are not going to look good for you. Um, and so, you know, my mother always describes those moments as, of course, very frightening. Um, but they always had faith that somehow they would, they would make it out. Um, and, but, you know, in those years before 1993, they were very persecuted. My father was still carrying out his 10-year sentence. You know, even though he was released from the re-education camp, they would still uh, make him do really hard labor, you know, digging latrines and cutting down trees and um, sweeping minefields, um, which is very dangerous work. Your dad still trying to deal with some of that trauma that he had experienced early on. You know, mental health is such a taboo still in most communities, especially, I think, in the Asian community. I mean, have readers come to you kind of sharing what they've been experiencing? Yeah, and I think that's uh, the highest compliment and such an honor for me when, when a reader shares with me their own experiences. Um, I think all my life I've been searching uh, for connection with others. And um, part of the reason, uh, or maybe most of the reason that I wrote this book is to connect with others. And so, um, and, and to, you know, share my truth, um, especially when most of my life I've been made to doubt uh, my perception of the truth. And so um, I think once I was able to finally really grasp what I had experienced and, and felt confident in, in, in saying it, I thought, I'm going to put it all in a book. If you could give parents some advice on if, you know, they suspect or if their children are sharing with them that they are um, having mental health issues or depression, what would be the advice that you give the parents? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, especially in our community where uh, mental health, there, there's still such a stigma around it. Um, I, I would love for parents to give their child the space to speak up um, and to not shame them. And, and just find whatever resources uh, are available, whether through therapy um, uh, or through the help of friends, just, just to really make the child feel held um, and, and not, again, not shame them for, for what they're experiencing. And also to, to realize that 
You know, our, our minds um, get sick the way that our bodies get sick. It's not, it's normal. Yeah, and I asked, I asked a question because um, in your book, I mean, you know, you gradually kind of go into this state of depression um, that I think there's early signs as you're growing up that, you know, you reach a point in your life where it really consumes you. Um, but I think your parents may be suffering with something similar. And because you didn't come from a household where you talked and shared this stuff openly, nobody was actually dealing with it or recognizing it. You know, why do you think that in our culture, we have such a hard time openly communicating? Really good question. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, why? I think... You know, there, there's this um, this uh, phenomenon, or not a phenomenon, but you know, saving face is something that is is very prevalent in Asian culture, and so we're always sort of wanting to appear put together um, and appear like like we know what we're doing, and so it's it's so uh, pervasive to the point where we don't want to show weakness, um, and then there's also you know. Conf Confucian values, which also permeate our cultures, which uh, you know are about the relationship between the the child and the parent, and um, how we have to honor that relationship. And so there's there isn't room for um, for any sort of uh, you know not not obeying your parents. There isn't any room for for weakness in in a sense. I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm making sense, but. No, you're, I think, I mean, this is the, what I was mentioning earlier is like, there's so many things in the book that is relatable. Your mom being a, a nail technician, and that is so common in a lot of Vietnamese immigrant stories. I mean, a lot of Vietnamese nail salons, Asian nail salons in general, but this is actually the part that I cried the most, and then I just couldn't stop crying for the rest of the book. But you know, you talk about when she finally was able to open up her own nail salon, and it was in a really bad part of town. And you were expected to go after school every day to work with her, um, one, because you needed the money, but two, you described it as um, it wasn't just you, know, you having to work for your parent or needing the money, it was the fact that you felt you needed to protect her. And when I say protect, it was because she was actually um, getting mistreated in that community. There was a lot of uh, racial remarks, people um, coming in and causing commotion and not paying, and she was just putting up with it. She was just putting her head down, ignoring it, and getting to work. But that's still happening in our community today to you know our elders. I, I think it's important to kind of talk about that feeling of wanting to protect. There was a moment in which, when, when I was younger, I always, I, I could see that my parents were struggling to make it in the world. Um, and uh, my brothers and I, we never really asked for anything from our parents because we were so aware of the destitution that we existed in and that my parents were, were trying to you know, just just put food on the table and push forward in order to uh, bring us to a, a better land. And um, I think when we're, when I was older and I saw my mother in this new environment and she was being mistreated, 
I, I just I wanted to preserve her ignorance in a way um, because she didn't she didn't understand the language she didn't understand English and there were these people who were just uh, yelling at her calling her these racial slurs that she didn't understand and it I was there and I would never tell her what those words meant and I sort of I, I felt like I needed to shoulder that burden um, because she was she had worked so hard. Um, and both of my parents had sacrificed so much for us to, to be here. When the victims in the Atlanta nail salon, when that story broke out, I mean, how did you feel? Yeah, I mean, that was really, because I, I heard the news of, of that shooting from my mother, um, and she had called me up really afraid, telling me to lock the door, and she said, you know, they're, they're killing Asian women out there, and that could be us, and these, these people worked in, in a salon. And I just remember, um, just wanting to take that fear away from my mother, but, but knowing that uh, what we experience will never leave us and, and that it's still happening. And that, that feeling of helplessness is so strong. Um, but, you know, all I could do was, was tell her not to worry. Um, and, you, you know, every day we take these walks around the neighborhood. And I remember, you know, days after that shooting, I would walk extra close to her. And, and you still live in the same neighborhood? I still live in the same building. <laughs> so. And your parents too, right? Yes, uh, they live on the third floor and I live on the second floor. <laughs> yeah. So wait, the third floor of like the original apartment? Uh -huh. when you, wow, okay, so that's rare. Yeah, yeah. So what made you want to come back and, li and live in the same building? Well, it actually, uh, my father had um, a triple bypass uh, surgery a few years ago and you know, I, I just, I, I was living in the neighborhood, but a little far, farther away, and I, I wanted to, to be closer uh, to him to keep an eye on him. And around that time, this, this, uh, the second floor apartment became vacant, and I thought, well, this is, this is great. Um, it wasn't so great for the writing process, however, because I, I needed distance. And, um, you know, here I am writing about this very complicated relationship that I had with my parents, especially with my father. And not only did he occupy this, this, this space in my mind um, mentally, you know, not only did he live upstairs in my mind, but he physically lived upstairs. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was having to really um, negotiate that relationship and, and trying to figure out how I could write this memoir while also being in the same space. So they didn't know you were writing it, so they didn't really influence the book. Not really, <laughs> but I would, you know, ask them, you know, some prying questions, and they're like, "Why are you asking me this?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, it's for that book that you don't believe I'm writing." <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I did want to ask, though, because I think for a lot of us um, growing up, we also depended on communities around us, um, whether it's you know other Asian communities or Vietnamese communities, to feel sort of like a sense of belonging and identity. And in the book, though, you don't really talk about that type of community at all. Uh, I think the Vietnamese community in New York City is already quite sparse to begin with. Um, and then coupled with my father's paranoia, and uh, he's very introverted, um, and he just he doesn't like people. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so growing up, you know, we weren't really, you know, he would always try to scare us away from, from having too many friends. And then we would, there's a, um, this Vietnamese temple in the Bronx that we would go to. 
And my mother is quite a sociable person, and she, she would try to make friends with the other temple goers. And my father would, you know, yell at her and say, we're, we're here to pray and, and chant and listen to the monk, and then we're going home. There's no socializing. <laughs> and so I think, um, you know, both of those factors combined made for a very isolating and lonely experience. And how's your relationship now with your dad? Um, well, he's sometimes a pain in the butt, <laughs> but I love him. Uh, I, I love my whole family. I think, um, I think in, in writing this book, like I said, I was, I was really able, I mean, not heal entirely. That's, that's you know, an ongoing process, but to, to at least understand where he was coming from and to know that many of his actions, although misguided, were born from a place of love. Um, and so, you know, now I see him and I, I'm able to really separate uh, his humanity from his actions and, and understand where he's coming from. Yeah, and there's an interesting part in the book where you touched upon very um, a little bit, but your parents were Chinese living in Vietnam. And um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but it was common um, for Chinese to migrate to Vietnam. But because there's historical conflict between the two countries, even if it happened centuries ago, um, the Chinese were not very welcomed in Vietnam. And you talk about your parents' upbringing where they didn't really, they weren't welcome, and they just kind of got used to it. They kind of recognized that they were Chinese living in Vietnam, and they identified themselves as Chinese Vietnamese. Um, and almost that same mentality passed on when you came to the US. Like they came to the US and was just grateful that they had a country to be in and that they knew they wouldn't entirely belong. And I don't know if I was the only one that interpreted it that way, but I felt like that mindset carried forward with them. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, there's always there, this sense of, um, like you said, not quite belonging anywhere. Um, and maybe that also added to the isolation too, um, not feeling like we fit in anywhere in the world, not even it, within a community. Um, and I think in many ways that also affected um, uh, their children. You know, my brothers and I, we also suffered from this feeling of never quite belonging to anything. Um, and I think in a way, as a writer, it helps me um, at least uh, plumb the depths of my humanity and, and find out where my identity truly lies. Um, and if it's not to a country, uh, then, then where, where is that? Um, and that's sort of my goal as a writer, to really explore that. Yeah, well, it's a great book. I recommend that you guys pick it up. It's going to be a quick read. Have a tissue box nearby <laughs> if you're a softie like me. Well, I want to thank you so much, Lee, for driving out and spending the evening with us. Um, I want to thank the audience for being here. Thank you, thank you everyone. It took Lee about eight years to finish the book, and she says her journey to reclaim her voice and then finding the strength to share it openly is ongoing. For more details on this episode, follow our Instagram at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 36. I'd like to thank the Montclair Public Library of New Jersey 
and AAPI Montclair for being our community partners for the podcast taping event with Lee. Vietnamese Boat People is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. Our mission is to preserve the stories of the Vietnamese diaspora and to elevate them as part of the Asian American narrative. We ask that you consider making a contribution to support the work that we do. In addition to the podcast, we host storytelling events and workshops for the community. You can visit us at www.vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash donate to make a contribution. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. I'm Tracy Nguyen Mang, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.